hey guys, and happy spring. Yes, today is the actual official first day of spring, and I couldn't be more ready. It's spring break for my kids here in Oklahoma, but whether it's warm or cold where you are, whether you're on a road trip or hustling to finish a work project, whether you're changing diapers and refilling sippy cups, or maybe you're working out or running errands right this second, I just want to welcome you to the messy table. If you're new here, this is an ordinary space for real women, imperfect stories, and the God who's constantly at work in our mess. I'm your host, Jen Jewell, and The Messy Table is not only partnered with my church, Life Church, and our sister's ministry, but we absolutely love connecting with other believers and churches around the globe. It's one of my favorite things, seeing the capital C Church united around one common heartbeat and mission, which is sharing the love and hope and redemption we have in Jesus Christ. And today, we're doing more of that. My great friend and fellow campus pastor's wife, Cindy Beal, is here co-hosting with me, which is so fun. And together we are chatting with the amazing Lori Wilhite. Lori and her husband, Judd, pastor Central Church in Las Vegas, of all places. And she leads a ministry called Leading and Loving It, which encourages and equips pastor's wives, women in ministry, and women in leadership positions. And all that sounds great. And it is great. But here's the deal. As you know, we often see the highlight reel. We often see what's polished above the surface, but here at The Messy Table, we take a peek behind the scenes where real life is happening. We share some of the good stuff and the hard stuff because we all have both. And I just value how open and real Lori is as we talk about everything from the horrific Vegas shootings to labels we put on ourselves and not feeling like enough to challenges we face, even as parents, yet stepping into the difficult thing to be an advocate and champion for the people we love. Guys, I learned so much from Lori, and I know her words will give you a fresh perspective and a shot of encouragement as well. So right now, grab your coffee, pull up a chair, and join us at the messy table. Well, hi, ladies. Hello. Hey, Jen. Well, first, I want to introduce my awesome co-host for today, the one and only Cindy Beal. Hi, Cindy. Hey, Jen. Thanks for having me on. I am so, I'm kind of nervous because like you're the guru of hosts. Like you're good. Whatever. You could take my job in a heartbeat. I don't think so. You break the mold here. So you're really good. No, no. Well, Cindy was interviewed for episode number 11 and shared all about her marriage that was honestly in broken pieces years ago, but now is even better than new. So if you didn't catch that episode, episode, mm, you're missing out on life, basically. <laughs> and Lori, sweet Lori, we are just so honored to have you joining us at the messy table today. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm super happy to be here with you guys. All right. Well, we want to know all about you and what makes you tick. So if you would just give us a little glimpse into your life, who is Lori Wilhite? <laughs> well, I uh, live in Las Vegas of all places. It's the craziest, but also most fun place to live. We never thought two little Texas kids would end up in Vegas, but it's a totally normal place until it isn't, but it's, <laughs> it's a really wonderful place to get to live and do ministry. Um, I am married to my husband, Judd, for the last 21 years. He is incredible. Together, we lead Central Church in Las Vegas, and it's just a joy to get to be able to partner with God here. It's super fun and messy, very messy, but very fun here in Vegas. And then we have two children. Our daughter, Emma, is 17. She is our opera singer. And my son, Ethan, is 14. He is our future novel writer. And we just have the, the greatest time here. It's, it's a blast. That's awesome. So Vegas. Vegas. I mean, I'm curious, right? What is it like? I mean, I know you just said some things about it, but what is it like living and ministering in Vegas? Like, do you have slot machines in your lobby or something? <laughs> <laughs> we have slot machines everywhere but our lobby, I think. They are in our grocery store, our gas stations, our restaurants, everywhere. But it's a really great place. We moved here when my daughter was two and five weeks before Ethan was born. So my kids don't know anything different. Um, we love to tell the story of when Ethan was in about second grade and we were in our minivan and we were driving home from a restaurant. We weren't down on the strip or anything. We were just around town and we pulled up at a stoplight and he saw this billboard and it's a billboard with the naked six backsides of women, because that's obviously what you need when you're promoting a radio station. Of course. And he said, Emma, 
which one of those naked girls is your favorite? Mine's the one with the brown hair. And all of the air got sucked out of our minivan. And I turned around and I said, Ethan, we do not have favorite naked girls because... I don't know why that's what I chose to say because we don't play favorites at our house. I don't know. And so it's, <laughs> so it's totally normal until it's not, right. but it's an interesting mm. place to raise your kids. But we have really, really wonderful people here. And really, I feel like the, there's the spiritual openness of the people here is really special. And so we get to walk with people through some, you know, really broken places in their lives and get a chance to see God really transform lives on a regular basis. So it is so much fun. It's so much fun. Mm, that's awesome. Well, we are all broken people. And so, you know, welcome to the table, everybody. That's all of us, no matter what really area of life we're in, whether we are um, in suburbia or whether we are in Vegas as a showgirl, we all need Jesus. So absolutely. Well, do you have any pet peeves, anything that you love, anything that you hate? Give us the scoop. Oh, that's hilarious. Okay. My biggest thing that I hate, hate is feet. (laughs) Feet. I don't, I cannot even with feet. And so once my kids got to about, I'm going to say 18 months, all socks and shoes and feet cleaning and care became a dad job. Mm, I can't do it. I don't want people to touch me with their feet. So my kids know that the fastest way to get mom to absolutely freak out and cry is to chase me with their dirty teenage feet. It it, it just, (laughs) that is my one thing. So everybody knows um, that like, my biggest nightmare is once summer hits and people start going to the beach and everyone on Instagram posts pictures of their bare feet. It is like, yeah. it's the worst. Which is it's so funny. Worst. It's so funny, Lori, because you love shoes. Like you have the love greatest shoes. shoes. She has, like when she's speaking, I see her, she's just always got the best shoes. She may not have the fanciest outfit, but she'll have the best shoes. So that's kind of funny. But those feet are covered up. They are covered. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> oh man, that's awesome. So I know you're a big fan of This Is Us, and I just have a confession that I've actually never seen it. Jen, Lori, I'm so we sad need to for pray you. for her. We need I, to pray for her. <laughs> you have so much missing in your life, Jen. That's I, what I hear. Everyone's disappointed in me. You know, so at some point when you just need like two days of straight crying, yeah. you just need to go on a binge-a-thon, and you'll feel so much better at the end. You'll yeah, all that cleansed sounds, out. <laughs> that sounds enticing. I need to cry a lot. Yay. Well, and then you'll you'll meet Jack Pearson, who always knows what to say at the right moment at any given time of the day to whomever he's talking. See, like a modern day, like Danny Tanner, Full House, he used to always like... No, no, no. (laughs) Very cheesily say the wrong right thing. No, nothing like Danny Tanner. Poor Danny Tanner. No, no, no. This is so far superior, Jen. So far. Okay. What am I missing out on? I don't really understand. It's just awesome. It's just real life. You like, I think you just really believe that they're all a family. Like you really believe they're brothers and sisters and husbands and wives. And so it's just good acting. And the banter between Randall and his wife is awesome. So it's just, it's just very entertaining and it kind of takes your mind off of reality. And sometimes when you're in full-time ministry, you just need to escape. (laughs) Can I get an amen? I'll amen that. story. Oh, that's funny. Well, back to Vegas. Real quick, I just want to touch on the fact that your city faced such a devastating tragedy last fall with the shootings that occurred um, during a music festival, of all things. Such a terrible, heartbreaking thing. So how were you guys at Central Church able to love on your people in city during this time? Well, it, it, was, a, whoa, it was a really hard, dark time for our whole city. Uh, we woke up on a Monday morning to the news. We had gone to bed early that Sunday night. And when we woke up, uh, Judd had, oh, hundreds of text messages on his phone. And he said, you got to wake up. Something's happened in our city. And we turned the television on and we just stood crying, watching the news as it unfolded. It's almost like a very surreal week when I look back at it. You're grieving and it's sad. And you're also trying to lead and minister to people and love on people. And it's, so it's, you're almost in a little bit of a fog, but our staff was just incredible. And I think when things are at its darkest, 
that's when your light has the ability to shine the brightest. And Mm -hmm. my husband just kept saying, you know, the only way for us to get through this is together. And so we had an opportunity to do a prayer service that Monday night. So about 24 hours after the shooting and just our church was just filled with people. You know, there were so many people there. There were about 22,000 people at the concert, 500 injured. Just the numbers were so staggering. And so our church was filled with people that night who were there, who had been shot, whose families were in the hospital. And it was a real, uh, it was really heavy and sad, but it was also a really beautiful a picture of unity and love for one another and the way our city, which is, you know, I think probably the perception of Las Vegas is that it's a very selfish city, but the way Vegas came together was so beautiful. People standing in line for hours and hours and hours to give blood to make sure those 500 people in the hospital um, could be cared for properly. And it was just a really sweet opportunity to walk into what was an absolute tragedy. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't even just for the people at the concert. You know, we have people who work up and down the strip that go to our church who were working that night, who were waiting tables or, you know, working the casino tables or whatever. And as the shooting happened, as people dispersed, they would run into these the surrounding hotels to get safe, but also get help. And they were triaging people on the casino floors. And, you know, so we had people that were waitresses who were thrown into triage situations, trying to take care of people. And so Mm -hmm. there just was a, a lot of people who just, they just needed a lot of counsel and help and love in those days following. And, and so it was really an honor as the church, to get to be the hands and feet of Jesus in that moment to people and come alongside them and, and be with them and love on them. And, you know, my heart has just been so broken with this shooting that's happened in Florida. It has brought back a lot of memories and feelings, I think, for a lot of people here. And, you know, I have seen pictures of their, the crosses that they have at their parks. They look exactly like the crosses we had here. And, it's very eerie. And one of my best friends, her church is literally minutes away from there. So many of those students went to their church. And so, you know, it's kind of, it's the playbook that you never wanted to have. It's the club you never wanted to be a part of, but exactly. to be able to help them and walk with their church and their leaders to try to help them know what to do to help their community. I've been really grateful for it. Um, I wish none of us knew what it was like to have to lead through a situation like that. But, you know, I'm glad we at least have each other to advise and pray for and lean on and understand. So, um, I, you know, I hope nobody else has to join that club, but I'm grateful that we've been able to use our experience now in these other situations. Hmm. I love what you said. The only way for us to get through this is together. And I think as much as we hate tragedy and nobody wants to wake up and look on their phone or look at the TV and see one more thing, it seems like all the time there's just one more thing. But tragedy really does bring us together as, you know, might be a nation, definitely as the body of Christ. Just the reminder that we're not enemies, that we're in this together and and really that we need each other. Right. No, I absolutely Well, you started a ministry called Leading and Loving It. And actually, Cindy, isn't that how you and Lori met? Yeah, we actually met through Twitter, I think it was. And I think it was back in like 2008 or nine. And we just kind of all started connecting and uh, we became, you know, fake friends, really. I say that. But (laughs) so we finally actually got to meet face to face in May of 2011. And ever since then, we've been friends ever since. So it's been pretty cool. Mm, So great. So tell us about this ministry. What made you start it? What's its purpose? Well, I I started it almost 10 years ago. It'll be 10 years old in April. So that seems hard to believe. It's like my baby. My baby is turning 10. Um, (laughs) But I started Leading and Loving. It's really a ministry for pastors, wives, and women in leadership, whether they lead at churches or Christian nonprofits, schools. It's really our effort to come alongside them and equip them and connect them and help make an impact in our world together. And I really started it out of my own kind of 
brokenness. I love being a pastor's wife. absolutely crazy about my husband, but ministry is tough. It's really tough. When we tell our, how did you meet and marry story to people, um, you know, as you do over dinner, when you get to meet couples, there's one bit that we always tell and always share. And it was when Judd had gone on a mission trip, uh, he was headed back to Texas with our pastor, his mentor, and he decided he was going to get his, you know, kind of approval to ask me to marry him and asked what he thought about that. And our pastor said, you know, Judd, your wife will make you or break you in ministry. And that phrase haunted me for a very long time. I didn't grow up in a ministry home. I didn't go to Bible college. I felt very ill-equipped to be doing ministry. And I knew Judd beyond a shadow of a doubt was called to leadership. I knew he was called to be a pastor. I knew he was right where he needed to be. I just wasn't sure about me. I was terrified that I was going to break Judd's ministry somehow. I was going to say something dumb. I was going to make some bad choice. I was going to make a mistake that would damage his leadership and his ministry. And I carried that around with me for a very, very long time to the point where I really had gotten myself into just a depression. I had withdrawn from a lot of people. I just really felt like the lights had kind of gone off in my life and I just didn't know how to get the switch turned back on. So over time, once I started really talking and processing it out in a healthy way, and once God really got my feet back on the ground and stabilized, and really, I think, built up some confidence in me as a leader that while I didn't maybe fit whatever I thought the pastor's wife mold was, that it's okay. He chose me anyway. And that process for me, it took about eight years, eight, nine years, way too long, really. How I just think about how much time I wasted in eight or nine years because I was so hyper-focused on the fact that I might break Judd's ministry. I missed the fact that there was a first part of that phrase that I could make his ministry. And it was at about that eight or nine year mark that I started trying to do the first part, um, to do everything I could to use my gifts, my strengths, my weaknesses, all of it to try to, you know, just help make his ministry even better. And so once I kind of got healthy, got my feet back on the ground, I just thought, I wonder if there are other people in ministry like me who have struggled, who don't really know what they're doing, who don't understand how to deal with maybe the expectations or criticism or, you know, being overwhelmed with your schedule or the lack of balance in your life or whatever. Um, the loneliness, so many, so many lonely people in ministry. And so I decided to start what at the time was this really terribly written blog. And I thought, you know, maybe I'll encourage the women who work at our church. That was kind of, I didn't think a lot beyond that. And when I started it, people just came out of the woodwork really quickly. They just I don't know how we find each other <laughs> in those kind of situations, but people just started showing up. And I think it's because there was just a vacuum there. And the beautiful thing about being in Vegas, because it is not a, um, people don't have church background or experience. So they don't have the same kind of expectations of Judd and I, as you would have maybe in the um, in the Midwest or in the South. Right. And so we have the freedom to talk very, very openly about our struggles. We don't, you know, it get, we have a lot of leeway in, um, being incredibly honest and authentic where some church leaders struggle with that because of expectations of their people. So we have the ability to just be very forthright and it's awesome. And so I just talked very openly and honestly about my struggles and ministry and personally. And I think it just filled a void at a, the right time and it started taking off really quickly. And, and before I knew it, it had developed into a full blown nonprofit ministry. Sometimes I'm so glad that God does not reveal that stuff to us early on, or we probably wouldn't have the courage right. to follow through on things. I, a poorly written blog I could handle, but a ministry, I don't know that I would have um, yeah. signed up for that, but that's how it got started. And now, um, you know, here we are 10 years later and we have about 
about 14,000 pastors, wives, women in leadership that are around the globe that are part of leading and loving it. And it is just like truly the joy of my life to get to come alongside church leaders and try to encourage them and keep them in the game and, you know, keep them filled up so that as they pour out to the people in their churches and in their ministries, they can be encouraged as well. So it's, it's just the most wonderful ministry. I'm so blessed by the ladies that are part of our community. You know what our pastor, Pastor Craig, he says, you know, people would rather follow a leader who's always real, the one who's always right. And I feel that you and Judd have done that not only in church, but you've done that within Leading and Loving It. I guess I joined the Leading and Loving It team in 2011, sometime after our first retreat. Mm -hmm. And I served for, I don't know, six years or so under Lori's leadership and, of course, Brandy Wilson, who is the co-founder. And I just loved the raw, the rawness, the vulnerability there, and just that we don't have it all together. I may be a step ahead than some person, but, you know, that other person may be two steps ahead of me. And so one of the things that I love about Lori is that she does not claim to have all the answers, but she can find the people who have the answers. And so (laughs) she did a really good job with that and leading and loving it. And so that has been a tremendous impact in my life. And one of the reasons I joined the team is because I had a passion to help other pastors, wives, and women leaders around the world, wherever I could help so that they could be encouraged and equipped because I felt like I had a good network around me, but I know not every woman feels that way. So uh, leading and loving it is is quite a, a valuable asset to the body of Christ. It is great. Well, I feel a little bit selfish because I've kind of been just a consumer (laughs) to leading and loving it. I was a part of a connect group for a while and love the Just One conferences that you send out. And I've read the book and it's just, there's so many great things. But, um, you know, whether someone is in ministry, vocational ministry or not, if you're a Christian, guess what? You're in full-time ministry. And um, I'm sure so many people, again, whether they're in ministry or or not, can relate to what you were talking about, the fear um, of not being enough the pressure to be perfect. And maybe you don't feel like you fit into the Christian mold, the ministry mold, whatever mold someone has put on you that you need to to fit into this. You need to look like this. And Lori, it's just such a great reminder that God has wired and made us each so unique. And He wants us to use those gifts for His glory. And so, man, there is such a diversity within the body of Christ of skill sets and personalities and giftings, and they don't all look alike. And none of us are perfect. Um, The only thing that we can boast in is Jesus, because other than that, we're just going to screw it all up. So just such a good reminder not to shy away from from who we really are, thinking that I need to look a certain way, but no, I need to be exactly who God has made me to be. And within that, God wants to use even that, even all of me. Mm. Yeah. And Jen, one of the things that was pretty powerful is obviously Leading and Loving It, we do a retreat every year. And about, I guess it was the retreat a year ago, October, so maybe 2016, I'm thinking. And I remember Lori's message was really, really powerful. And one of the things that we did is every woman who attended got a bag. And in that bag, there was a rock. Lori, was it a red, a black rock or a white? Yeah, a black black, river rock. Mm -hmm. So it was a black, everybody got a black river rock and a Sharpie, something to write or some kind of pen to write on that. And one of the things that Lori talked about in her message was, What is a label that someone has put upon you or that you've put upon yourself or how do you see yourself? And, and it was, we were supposed to write it on the rock and then we would come forward and turn that rock in and put it on the stage and get a key in return. Or I think it was a bracelet. I can't remember what it was that year, but it was so powerful to see all these rocks up on the stage And to see all these labels, all these things that people have said about us or what we've said about ourselves or what we believed about ourselves. And then I remember Lori telling us after retreat, she just sat there and was staring at the rocks afterward. And God just sparked this idea in her of a new name. And so, Lori, I would love for you to tell everybody a little bit of the process going forward about the book you just wrote called My Name is Victorious and how, um, I mean, I've kind of set it up a little bit, but just give us a little bit more detail about uh, why you wrote that book. 
Yeah. I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head. It was that moment sitting on the floor surrounded by these rocks and I would pick them up and read them and they would say things like ugly or not enough or too old, too broken. And I went through each one of them and I prayed for the ladies who felt defined by those things. And I'm sitting amongst these are church leaders. These are the names that church leaders feel identified by. And I got it. I understood. I had carried names like that around for a long time too. And there's this beautiful verse in Revelation where Jesus says, I'll give you a new name on a white stone. Mm-hmm. And the, that white stone was a symbol of victory. And so we took those stones and traded them and actually for a white stone, just to remember that it was time for us to embrace a new name, like the name of victory. And so... I sat in those stones and just thought, you know what, I have to, I felt like I needed to respond to what I was seeing all around me. And I knew that those names weren't just the names that pastor's wives felt or that women in ministry felt. Really, I felt like these are the names that probably every woman everywhere can identify with. And so um, we started writing, my name is Victorious, just to help people get strength and freedom and joy in who they were created to be instead of hauling around all of those old names. And it's been fun to get to see groups go through this study, to see people work through it devotionally on their own, and to hear what a difference it's making in people's lives as they lay down those old names and release all of those old names and just claim the name victorious instead. It's it's been exciting. So I just have been in Revelation. I actually just read that. So I just looked it back up and it's Revelation 2.17. It says, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. And I will give to each one a white stone and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. And uh, I just love how personal and intimate that is. I mean, mm-hmm. that is our God. There's some mystery wrapped in that. But again, he's, he's such a loving and personal God who calls us each not only by name, but gives us a new name um, that's not only victorious, but that is unique to our own lives and probably the things that we've been through. And I know for me this year, my word for the year is obedience. And I think so many times I have been fearful instead of stepping into that trusting obedience or making excuses for how I think the story is going to go with certain areas of my life um, instead of just walking step by step in that trusting obedience, knowing that that God, He has a plan and He has me. I don't need to be trapped in fear or worry. Mm, that's good. Yeah. And I think that I think that obedience factor is is so key because what happens is we're so focused so much on the outcome. And if we would just understand that we have a role to play, we have a job, we have a role. And if we'll just do that, and then leave it in his in God's very capable hands. He's got it. You know, mm-hmm. our the outcome of a situation is not in our hands, but our obedience is, and that's what mm. we have to to remember every day. I'm going to be faithful with my part, and I'm leaving it in His hands. Mm. Preach, preach! I could preach all day. <laughs> Man, that's so good. Well, I love that, Lori. And uh, we're actually going to give away a copy of your book here on the podcast. And so there will be details at the end of this podcast recording. So woohoo. That's awesome. Well, so I want to know, this is the messy table. Um, I know you've already talked a little bit about some different messes in your life, but describe a time when life got pretty messy or difficult for you, but still you experienced God through it. Oh gosh, I can think of so many times (laughs) because life is just pretty messy. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I think probably one of my biggest challenges, I think, has been related to parenting. I have the most wonderful children. They're awesome. I feared having teenagers. I really did. I feared having teenagers (laughs) and teenagers are awesome. I'm having an absolute blast with them, but you know, parenting has been, I mean, it's, it's been a tough road. I, my son is 14. He is so smart, so witty, 
the most creative kid I've ever seen. He's got stories written in his brain and he is, he's just this smart, quirky, creative, awesome kid, but he has some learning disabilities and learning challenges and it has made the educational road very difficult for us. Um, from my very first parent teacher conference when he was three in preschool to, you know, even his latest ones this fall. Uh, I think I literally have cried in every single parent teacher conference for 10 years and it's been hard and difficult. And, you know, it's our job, I think as moms is to make sure that we advocate for our children. Some children need that more than others, but my son definitely needed it. He's one of those kids that because he's bright, he's able to compensate for a lot of his difficulties. And so he's the kid that falls through the cracks, not failing, but not being able to be as successful as he can be because he has these learning hurdles that he can't jump over. And we went on a journey of trying to figure out what those hurdles were to identify them and then to figure out how we were going to uh, jump over them together. And that journey of advocacy for him has been difficult. And I think I probably cried to Cindy on the phone about it many times. I probably, I asked her about homeschooling many times, trying to figure out what was going to be best for us and for him. And God was always so good in the midst of it. I mean, I had times where I would come to my husband's home office and I would just sit down and lay my head in his lap and cry and cry and say, I just don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I have the energy for it because it was just so hard. And, you know, it's hard to feel like you're not enough of a mom Mm. and like you might not be able to do enough for your child. It's hard to watch them struggle. It's hard to watch, you know, them face those kinds of challenges. And it's, it's hard it's hard to hear the th- some of the things that people will say. And, um, but God was always so good. He led us to the right people and the right testing and all of that. Uh, he surrounded me with people who understood they had challenges with their children that may have been different, but were similar enough that we could like create a little club together. <laughs> um, he brought people into my life that could, that understood and could encourage me. And, you know, and hopefully I've been able to do that for some other people as well. But it has been definitely a journey that I'm thankful right now we're in a, such a great season. He is, I did finally pull him out and he's schooling at home right now. And it has been the greatest thing for him ever. His confidence is back up. He's doing really well. He can, uh, he's working more independently than he ever has with school. And so I had so much fear related to that, but, but God has been so good to have us just in a really, really sweet season with him right now. But it's definitely one of those things that I guess when, when they're 60, I'm going to still feel all the same things. I don't know. Um, I don't know that you ever get over just that desire to help your children and to walk with them so, so closely and to, lift them up when they're struggling. And so to have the Lord walk with us so beautifully to be with him, be with our son so powerfully has been an awesome thing to watch over the last 10 years. And to see how far he's brought him has just been, it's been awesome. Isn't that like us as moms, not maybe it's not just a mom, but women, we're so relational relationships are such at the heart of who we are. And so when those relationships are taxed or strained, we take it on and we feel like a failure. I know that with my kids, you know, I have not worked outside the home for most of being a mom. And I, so I've been home with them. And what's funny is if they're doing good, sometimes I'm like, okay, maybe I can do this mom thing. And if they're not doing great, I'm like, okay, I need to find someone else who could take over from here because it just... And that is the theme of being a mom. It is. It's just affects so deeply for us. And, you know, I tell Chris, you know, he gets reviews every March by his boss and, and he is told, you know, you're doing well here, or, you know, you didn't meet this goal or, Hey, we really like this or whatever it is on his review. 
but I don't get that review. My kids don't come and say, hey, mom, so I really loved it when you read all those bedtime stories to me. And <laughs> I really love that you took me to church and let me know Jesus. And so there's just usually not that kind of, you know, checks and balances in motherhood. So it's just, it's hard because I want to review. I don't know if that makes sense, but sometimes as a mom, it just... It's hard. It is hard. And I think if I can say one thing about you with Ethan is you have been his champion. You have been his cheerleader. You have been his support. Um, I know Judd has as well, but man, you have put your heart and soul into that child. And I believe great reward is just going to keep coming in his life, in your life. Cindy, you're going to get me all weepy. Don't cry, Lori. Don't cry. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that. Well, I'm curious, just on a practical level, how have you learned to be that advocate and cheerleader despite some setbacks and, like you said, probably some critics sometimes and and just some things that you can even take personal? I know as a mom, I can take things personal. And so how have you learned practically to be the advocate for him? Oh, I think it's several different things. One is I've had to go on a little bit of a journey. I remember early on when he was in early elementary school and I was going in to get some testing results and they were pretty big ones that were scary to me that I, I was very nervous about it. And I remember sitting, my husband was out of town. I don't know why these things always happen when the husband is out of town, but they always do always. So <laughs> my, was, my kid is sick almost every time yes, that my, my husband's the water gone. heater, something always. And so I'm sitting in the school parking lot and I'm crying and trying to like prep myself for what I might hear. And I just had this moment with the Lord about, um, you got to love the kid you have. And I was like, I love my kid. I wouldn't trade him for any other kid whoever that kid is, but you got to love the kid you had, not the one you wanted to have. And I think we have, we have dreams for our kids and expectations. And, you know, obviously our dream for him was not that he would struggle so much academically and that it would be so hard. We would have never envisioned that for him, but that's the road he has. And so I just remember thinking, no matter what I hear today, this is the kid I love. I love this kid. This is the one I want. I, I don't want another one. And so I've, I've just sunken myself into that over the years of just reminding myself that, man, how incredibly thankful I am for him. And while it is not always easy, I would not trade him for anything. He is awesome. So if that means I have to go to some pretty ugly school meetings, then so be it. <laughs> It'll be fine. And so, but one of the things that's really driven me And maybe this is why I cry at every parent-teacher conference. Those poor teachers, I know when they see me coming, they just grab the box of Kleenex. But I feel like part of my job as his mom is to help solicit compassion. And I think that's biblical to help people have compassion towards those who basically are in need of it. And so part of what I do as his advocate is... I have a PhD in Ethan. I know Mm -hmm. the ins and outs of him. I have a full understanding of his personality, of his gifts, of his strengths and um, what's hard for him. And I'm an expert. And part of my job is to go in, explain him to people and then solicit compassion. What happens, I think, sometimes is the frustration that people may feel if they don't have, aren't also moved by compassion toward him, they just, it can get a little ugly. And so that is, I feel like one of my main jobs. Yes. I have to go and make sure that his accommodations are being yet met. And yes, I have to go, you know, make sure everybody's on board with 504s and all of that stuff. But I feel like one of my main jobs is to solicit compassion and understanding of him and his needs. And so I take that very seriously. And even though that's not in any book for dealing with teachers and 504s and all of that, I feel like it's one of the most important things I can do for him because if his teachers can see him through a lens of understanding and compassion, then it changes those, some of those frustrating moments. It calms down some of those uh, tensions. And, and so I just try to put that at the forefront of every meeting that I have for him. And the other thing that has been really big for me, I am 
the solicitor of advice from everybody who I think is brilliant. And so if I have a friend, I will like tell them what's going on and say, somebody advise me because, you know, I, I just feel like God puts people in our lives. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. I think that's smart. That's so smart. I, I just soak it up. So I was telling a friend, talking to her about it and, and she said, you know, I think you, what you need to realize is that a school is not made for everybody. And she said, and frankly, I don't think school's made for Ethan, for a kid like him, the way his brain is wired and worked and works. And she said, and then I think you're trying to fit him into a box that he does not fit in. So like at church, I, I always would say to my kids, you know, we're going to go and we're going to serve a service and we're going to attend a service. And that's what we do. And that's what all the church members do. And it was easy with my daughter. She was like all on board with that. It was easy, easy. And then I have my son who one of his issues is he has pretty severe social anxiety. So he doesn't want to go serve. Mm -hmm. It is very stressful for him. She said, I appreciate the heart of what you're trying to do. But she said, I think you need to keep more in mind the makeup of the child God has given you. So, okay. So Ethan doesn't serve one and attend one. He actually attends two. He's very happy to do it. And actually, I think what God has been able to do in his life uh, of faith has been awesome. And if I had forced him into a place where he was not comfortable, I could have really set him back instead of helping him to grow, which is what I wanted him to do. So part of that has been me understanding who he is, how he's made up, and then allowing him to be in the places that can be best for him. And then understanding, you know, the way the um, educational environment is, is not made, it's not made for every child. And so I've been on a journey of trying to find his best fit, which I think is what we're in right now. And instead of constantly beating my head on this brick wall of like, mm -hmm. let me find the soft wall. So let's, <laughs> let's find that. It's not that all the problems will go away. It's not that all the challenges will go away, but gosh, if I can get him in a situation where he's more confident and independent, then that's what we need. And so, you know, gosh, it's only taken me about 10 years to figure that <laughs> out, but we persevered and we've got it. And so those would be two of the big things is just realizing, you know, all, obviously all kids are, are different and, and it's okay. It's okay to find what works for your child and mm -hmm. to allow them with their gifts and their makeup to maybe break the mold just a little bit. I, I had to, you know, let go of some of my like ideals just a little bit to make sure that he was in a space where he could grow spiritually. And, um, so I think we're in a sweet place with that right now. I think that's so wise, Lori, because we do have to know our kids. I love that you said you had a PhD in Ethan. And I think that is so, so important for us to know our kids and how they're wired. And, and a lot of times as people in the limelight who people are watching our parenting as pastor's wives, which all three of us are in that role, and they're watching and we have to say, okay, am I here to please God? Or am I here to please people? Because pleasing both is, is probably not going to happen. And so I, I do know that that is so wise on your part to figure out what works for him and to be okay that there may be people who are talking and going, she should be doing this with him. It would be so much better. But they don't know him like you do. That's right. And one thing, the last thing I'll say about, about this is for those moms out there who are finding themselves in the place of advocacy for their children, Another place to advocate for your kid is church. We kind of forget about it sometimes because church isn't going to have a, you know, a 504 meeting or an IEP meeting, but we need to advocate for our kids at church. So one of the things I always do is sit down with the group leader and say, let me tell you about how awesome my kid is. And now let me tell you how to work around some of these other things. Because I want church to be a place of success and acceptance and love and compassion for him as well. And that's going to happen best if I go in and advocate for him. And so I do that at church as well as at school and um, help youth leaders who do not have special education backgrounds <laughs> understand um, how best to reach my child. And so just I just encourage all moms to do that, to advocate in all of the areas of life, not just, just school and academically, but to try to really set them up for the best experience at church and beyond. 
I love how you have stripped off whatever pictures and whatever ideals you had in your head and how you've stepped into that journey and that place of advocacy. It makes me think about how God loves us even more, which is such an everlasting love that runs deeper than mm. even that even that mama bear love, you know, which which man, it's strong and watch out, you know, if you mess <laughs> with my kid. That's right. <laughs> but man, that, I think that's such a beautiful thing. And I even if it took you 10 years, it takes us all, we're all in process. Um, just the fact that you were willing to do the hard thing and step into that hard role and to be his cheerleader, his advocate, and to get that PhD in Ethan um, is such a, just a beautiful, beautiful picture. Thank you. I appreciate that. So obviously, Lori, we have um, talked about a lot of different things here in the last half hour or so. And as we finish up, would there be anything else you want to say to our audience? Any final word of encouragement, anything you just that's on your heart and you want to share? Well, you know, Jen talked earlier about her word for the year being obedience. I think my word for the decade has been sovereignty, to just trust in God's sovereignty. I think it's permeated so much of my life in the last decade of learning just to trust that God knows what he's doing and knows what he's up to. You know, maybe I have control issues. I don't know, but, um, there's <laughs> me too. being able to trust his sovereignty. And, um, you know, I had years ago, I was standing in the Miami airport with a friend and I was having this moment where I just, am I enough of a mom? I don't know if I can be what my kids need me to be. I don't know if I'm a good enough pastor's wife. I don't know if I can be at all the things or do all the things or be who the church needs. I like, can I be enough of a wife? And, uh, my husband is incredible, but can I come alongside him? Like he needs me to. And I just was having this like little pity party moment of, I'm just not enough moment in the Miami airport. And this sweet friend of mine, like tossed her suitcases down and turned around and put her hands on my shoulders and said, Lori, I just got to ask you, do you think God's sovereign? And I was like, well, yeah, duh. It's like the easiest Christian answer ever. Yes. God's sovereign. (laughs) And she said, well, then do you not think he knew who Judd needed as his wife? Do you not think he knew what he was doing when he put the two of you together? Do you, do you not think he knew what, like who central would need as their pastor's wife? And yes, you have strengths and you have weaknesses, but do you not think he knew what he was doing when he made you the pastor's wife at central? And do you not think that God knew what he was doing when he gave you Emma and Ethan? Do you not think he knew your background and, and the educational journey had taken you on and, and your gifts and strengths as a parent? Do you not think he knew what he was doing? do you not think he's sovereign? And I Mm. like just froze because that was a little harder for me to answer. And I wanted to be honest. And I took a deep breath and, and I decided standing in the security line at the Miami airport that yes, I did believe God was sovereign and I was going to trust him in it. And it was a real turning point for me. And that was about nine years ago. Yet I still have to remind myself of that almost daily that I have to trust God's sovereignty. Um, if something, you know, crazy happens, then do I trust God's sovereign? If my kids end up, you know, with the teacher that I didn't want for them, do I trust God's sovereign? If, um, we get test results that I wasn't expecting or didn't want, do I trust God as sovereign? If something happens at our church in our city tragedy, do I trust God as sovereign? And that has grounded me over the last nine years and gotten me through some, I think, hard moments and hard situations and sometimes hard years. But I have to go back to that on a regular basis. Do I believe God's sovereign? And if I do, then am I going to trust him in whatever situation I have before me? And so that my encouragement to people is is just that to like let me put my hands on your shoulders and say do you believe God's sovereign even though you know all your weaknesses and you can think of a laundry list of failures do you believe God's sovereign that he's chosen you to be the wife to your husband the mother to your children the friend to your friends the the worker at your job maybe the servant at your church 
do you trust his sovereignty in it? And if we do, then we've got to learn to ground ourselves in that and to lean into that and uh, let that lift us up when times get tough. That's powerful. Man, that pretty much sums up life here at the messy table, that life is messy, but God is constantly at work and it's not trusting that there's going to be some picture perfect life going on, but just that He is alive and He is active and He is working. And um, even though we live in a fallen world, you know, He can use broken things and He can redeem and He can restore. Um, and just that He's good over all things. So, oh man, great reminder. Thank you, Lori, so much, so, so much for joining us, for just sharing a piece of your heart, for opening up your life and, and some of the stories that you've been a part of, um, just to encourage us today. Thank you again for letting me be here. I, it's just been such an honor. It's been awesome to be with you guys. All right, guys. Well, as always, we consider it our honor and complete privilege to share this imperfect space with you. Thanks for joining us and thanks for sharing what impacts you. We love reading what you have to say on places like Instagram and iTunes. So thanks for that. And hey, we are giving away one of Lori's books. My name is Victorious. So if you've ever struggled with not being enough, like most of us have, and want to remember how God sees you, simply share this episode on social media and you will be entered to win her book. She also has four free coordinating video teaching sessions. I'll link those up in the conversation notes at jenjewel.com. And remember, you can subscribe for free in all the usual places, iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And if you haven't done it yet, you can still start the free seven-day Messy Table Bible Plan on the YouVersion Bible app. And a little secret, there might be part two coming for you in the next month or so. So stay tuned. And finally, if you missed the last few episodes with Tina Letourneau, Sandra Stanley, Ruth Russo, Shanna Crawford, they are all so uniquely powerful. Be sure you go back and catch up. And hey, from our messy table to yours, we hope you have an awesome week and enjoy your very first day of spring.